We thank you, Lord Jesus. We do ask you, Lord, to shine now in our midst. I pray, Lord, that you would renew the fire in each of my brothers and sisters, that they have by virtue of their baptism into you, that your spirit, the holy presence of your very being, would come to full flame in them this morning, that they would be shining sons and daughters in your family. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to talk this morning, we've been in a season of um, engaging with God for growth, right? It's a good kind of a sermon series for the summertime when hopefully there's lots of things growing. I think finally it's really kicked into gear along with the heat and the, the, the moisture. We've got plenty of it here. I think that might be a little bit of a problem for some of the farmers in getting the crops in and making sure it has a full season of growth. But what Jesus is doing with the disciples this morning in the gospel is he's speaking to a specific kind of growth that we don't like to think about too much. And it's what I guess you could call um, growing pains. Right? Growing pains is, is part of growth. And uh, there's a godly form of suffering that actually when you cooperate with it leads to tremendous growth. In fact, I wanna say that the godly forms of suffering, if we will receive them and participate in them as God might have them for us, he can really use those to cause a, a, a tremendous spurt of growth. It's almost like a crucial phase of growth if we can cooperate with it. And it's not always clear how to do that, is it? Like sometimes suffering is just so difficult and part of the, the suffering itself is actually it's confusing. And it's confusing and it's chaotic and like, Lord, where are you in that? Um, and so it's, sometimes it's difficult to perceive it, and we've got great books in our culture, like uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl talks about the suffering in the Holocaust that he and his fellow Jewish people went through and how hard it was to make sense of that. But he even spoke of, even in that situation, which was clearly the work of the devil, that people were able to find a tremendous power with the Lord and a tremendous way that they could grow and manifest a heart value even in the pit that was the Holocaust. And he talked about how these men and these women, as they would walk to the gas chambers, would recite either the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then the, the great commandments of love the Lord your God that we just read with all your heart, your mind, and strength. And then the Christians would go to the same ovens and they would be reciting the, the, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And this was, this was a manifestation in the midst of a great, great trial of godliness, of light in the midst of darkness. Um, we have a, a fellow alumni of my um, my school where I went to college, it's Wheaton College, Jeannie and I both went there, graduated a long time ago back in 1987, and uh, one of our classmates, I remember him, his name was Andrew Brunson, he was a fellow philosophy major, he was uh, just a year behind me, and I remember him, he, he always looked so, so young compared to what I thought, I looked probably pretty mature, now I look really mature, <laughs> but back then I was, you know, taking pride in, because he, he sort of had this youthful, childish look, but he was also very serious, very serious about wanting to become a missionary to foreign lands. Now, you guys may recognize his name. Andrew Brunson's been in the news quite a bit in the last year because he spent two years in a Turkish, Turkish prison, prison, 
I can talk, I'll work on it. So he spent two years in a Turkish, Turkish prison being accused of terrorism. He was a pastor in Turkey and um, somehow they got into their heads after that, that coup that he was somehow involved and he worked for the CIA and he was actually convicted of treason. And they're completely um, false charges. So anyway, he spent about two years in prison, and Andrew tells the story about how when he was in prison the first month, he really had sort of romanticized what it'd be like. He worked for a guy who had had some prison experience in the communist regimes of old, and he had this romanticized view that he was gonna, he was gonna be leading Bible studies in the prison, and it was gonna be great breakthrough. He was gonna have an overwhelming sense of the presence of the Lord. And it's not how it worked out. Oh, the first month was like that. And he had the entire book planned out. He was just going to title it The Presence. But then after the first month, he got transferred to a different prison. And it turned out to be a much longer stint in a much less friendly environment. And he barely got to see his family, his wife, like once a month. And I think his mom maybe once every other year, or once every year, I should say. And it became this really dark place for him. And he couldn't sense the presence of the Lord. He went to, into a dark night of the soul. It was a kind of, a, of a, a suffering where you just can't make sense of it at the moment. But what happened there for him was the Lord started to stoke the fires of something in him. And the only thing that he had left was, even though he couldn't sense the presence of the Lord, was he just felt love for Jesus. He felt the love for the Lord that the Lord had given him. And he would sing songs like, you know, Oh Lord, How I Love You, simple songs, and You Are Worthy of My All. And these things began to sustain him, and then the fire of his love for the Lord began to grow. I mean, it was about a year before he ever sensed the presence of the Lord again. But he realized what the Lord was giving him as a gift. And it came to him when he, he reread this passage in Matthew 24, where Jesus is describing the end times. And he's describing how when wickedness multiplies, the love of some men will grow cold. And what he's saying is that when things get really hard in the world, and the world sometimes arrays itself against you as a Christian, that's a temptation to let your love run cold. And he felt like what the Lord was doing in him, he was like, by his Holy Spirit, whose presence he couldn't even sense, just the billows of the winds of the Spirit were blowing up the fires of his love for Jesus so that he could bear witness to Jesus, even though it was a really, really brutal time for him. And he became a fierce witness for Jesus. And then he comes to us and he's saying, now that he's been released through the prayers of people and the intervention of many, in the last year, he's been speaking this word to us. Like, we're in a day and an age when the world really is less and less friendly towards the words and the mission of the church and a witness of Christian faith. And it's going to get harder. And you will be tempted not to bear witness and not to be loving in this context. But the call is for you to continue to value for your love of God above all and your love of neighbor as yourself. And so he's saying, I want these values that have been sort of, sort of really rechristened in me as a way of life. I want to encourage all of you to do that. Through suffering, heart values became much more bright in his own mind, much more real for him so that he could minister that to us and remind us. 
I was talking with my friend Dean yesterday. We, we spent the whole week building a fence in my backyard. It was uh, hot and sweaty and sometimes rainy. We had tons of fun, but we talked a little bit about growth yes, yesterday. Uh, Dean's got some background in agriculture, so thank you, Dean, for helping enlighten me a little bit here. But one of the things he was noticing about this parable, because I do think it's sort of like a parable in John, is that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. He's saying... That's a natural progress, right? There's a kind of a suffering that that grain of wheat is going through. But if it doesn't go through that, it's going to remain alone. But if it does go through that natural but crucial phase of suffering for growth, if it does, then it becomes mature. It actually fulfills its ultimate way of being. It becomes fully alive. To me, it's kind of like when a baby is in a womb, the way the poets describe it is like the existence of the womb is like the Elysium of paradise. It's like the best thing, you know? Everything is completely provided for. You're sort of floating in this space. You're constantly surrounded by love. And then all of a sudden, this really intense thing happens, and you're pushed out into this really cold and bright and noisy world. And I would think, you know, like that doesn't sound very attractive if you've been hanging out in the womb for a long time. But you have to die to the womb existence in order to come alive to the world existence, which, yeah, it's difficult, but it has a lot of benefits. And actually, it's about maturing into the fullness of what it means to be a human being. So there's these key moments in life where God especially, I think, has a value that he might want you to embody, that he might want you to really shine forth. I love the way that Paul puts it. I think it's to Timothy he's saying, I want all of you to shine like stars in a darkened generation. Whenever I think about a star, though, I'm realizing that happened from an explosion. That's a lot of friction. That's a lot of heat in order to shine. And I think that in some ways, the very things that are most difficult are the moments that God wants to use to cause you to be refined and to grow fully into the truth of who you are. Each of us has a unique way of reflecting the light of Christ. And I think a lot of times it happens through the crucible of a kind of a suffering. And the question is, what, what is that that's maybe an issue for you? that might reflect a kind of a heart value that you, in particular in the kingdom, are supposed to manifest. I think it's often unique to the person. We were talking about this in our small group. I think, for instance, if you're a teacher and you're listening to somebody just butchering a talk on how something should be taught, and, and it's just grating on you like fingers on a chalkboard, you have a value for, for truth and doctrine, that it be properly taught and rendered. You have a value there, and that's a kind of a suffering that you bear because when it's not being manifested, that hurts. It does. I think that sometimes we can pick up on, like, what's that heart value? What is that heart value? It's probably really related to your unique call that you know when it's not right that way, you get stirred up. You get burned up even a little bit. Maybe it's, maybe it's a call to justice. Uh, maybe it's a call to really preserve the traditions that we've received. I think it could, be, it could be both. It could be other things. I think for me, a lot of times, it's compassion. Like, I, I, I love the truth, but I always want the truth with love. And, I, and at the same time, I really love compassion, but I don't want it to be fake, sentimental compassion. So bringing truth and love together, man, it pains me when I don't see that. 
Because as a pastor who has a really strong pastoral call, a value like that, it just, it kind of grates on me like, Lord, help the church to be more compassionate. Lord, help the church to, to tell the truth. Those are things that the Lord has really said, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll suffer because I'm refining those values in you so that you can manifest them, so that you could bring them to bear in other people's lives. Sometimes it's harder to tell what that value might be in your life. Um, sometimes it's actually a value that you've, you, you actually really have, but you've shunted away a long time ago because it was embarrassing. When you think of the, the sensitive little boy who's so sensitive that his friends make fun of him and say, he's, you're being silly. So he becomes a very rigid and hard and tough guy going forward. Maybe even joins the military since you, you have to harden yourself even more to be in the military. But you're an extremely sensitive person and you bury that deep within you because it's too painful to be that. Is there something like that in your life? Is there some way of manifesting being that is too painful for you and so you've, you've tamped it down? But it's actually your unique way of reflecting the light of Christ. And it's kind of like the Lord wants to rub away all of that repression off the mirror of your soul, off the blackened places in the mirror of your soul so that, that you can shine that out again even if it's a suffering, even if that bright flame burns a little bit. What is that in you? I think for me, it's, I, I keep getting these words. I had a, a word from somebody last week. He was praying for me in the midst of a, of, a, of a group of people, probably about this size, and I didn't know any of them, and he didn't know me. And he, he, stand, he gets me to stand up in the middle of this group, and he says, I have a word for you. And then he proceeds to talk for four minutes, specific prophetic words for me, and I'm in a completely strange environment, okay? I can tell you more about it later. But the one thing that he did say that caught my attention was, he says, I hear the word radical. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> I think I'd go back again and ask God again. I don't think you heard that word. No, I'm hearing the word radical. And the people who, who know you, they'll be surprised that this part of you is now coming out. Radical is the word that I'm hearing. No, you don't. <laughs> It reminded me of uh, another experience I had, and it crystallized it for me when he said, and the joy of the Lord will be your strength. You're to be radical in joy. Radical in joy. The Lord's saying this to me in so many different ways lately. Radical in joy. I'm like, that, that doesn't sound like me, Lord. That's because you've buried it. You've buried it. That was part of you that when you were a little kid, you loved to just jump and down. You remember when you get a cookie and a piece of ice and a scoop of ice cream? Leaf, remember this? We would, we would stand on the front, Leaf is my brother, we'd stand on the front porch of our house, we'd eat the ice cream, and we were so happy about it, we'd start to jump. <laughs> and then at some point, that kind of happiness, you know, gets shamed. And, um, and I think, you know, like the Lord entered into his suffering, and he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, Right? So he so manifested a joy that even the deepest suffering, the suffering of all humanity arrayed against him, could not suppress it. And then ev eventually he is exalted at the right hand of God in full glory and drawing all men to himself because of the joy that was set before him. And, and that joy, even in the midst of a suffering, sustained him and drew him forward into the full maturity of his call as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Savior and Lord. 
the joy that was set before him. So I'm, I'm, I'm all of a sudden, this all crystallized for me. And I remembered a time, I've shared this story maybe once before from the pulpit, where I was at an Anglican event. And it was a, the first international event that I can remember within the country of all these global South Anglican people. And I was more aware of a kind of an Anglicanism where people wear robes and they're very staid and they're very stately. And the name of this, this conference was something like Anglicans Awake, you know, which I thought was good because we were kind of sleepy. Or maybe it was Anglicans Alive and I felt like, yeah, we're a little bit dead. And I was a walking poster boy, uh, poster boy for that in so many ways. And I remember at a certain point, I'm surrounded by all these African brothers and sisters who are up on this big stage in this 2400 person auditorium. And I'm like, I'm over here. So this is where, this is where all the clergy were gathered at that particular event. And then all of a sudden during the celebration, after the communion had been distri distributed, a lot of my African brothers, and then my senior pastor is now my bishop, they start to go around the altar. And they're, they're like dancing and they're dancing. And I'm like, what is that? What are they doing? And, um, and so I just stood there, well, I'm glad for them. It's so good to have people that, you know, are exuberant, isn't it? And uh, I'm standing there thinking, well, I'll, I'll hold the other wing. Like there's a whole wing of people who really want to remain in their seats and be quiet. And I'll stand in for them. And uh, I remember Bishop John Ruchahana, he's, 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 he was like the first bishop from Rwanda that I really got close to. And he was a very commanding presence because he'd lived through so much in the genocide. He was such a man of faith. And he's like right here, he says, you go dance now. Oh, no, I don't do that. I'm Norwegian. I don't do that. He says, I command you dance. Okay. Fine, I'll dance. And so I kind of like do this weird kind of like... I don't know what it was, but I felt like Gollum going around. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And my, you guys have seen our bishop, right? Our bishop, even before he had these robes, you know, like the cope that he wears, which is kind of like a cape, it's a cope cape. He gets, he like puts it in like this and then he'll, he'll go around like this and he's always doing this. And then he was sort of like doing this, this Neo thing in the matrix, like it looked like that to me. He was having so much fun. He was an embodiment of joy. And I thought, well, I'd like to be like that, Lord. But how often am I? And, and I know that so much of that joy that really is part of me had been suppressed by the suffering of shame and the suffering of being mocked when you're a kid and you get excited and you can't help but jump. What's the matter with you? Stop that stuff. So I think... What I'm trying to say about that is, like, is, what is there? Are there qualities in your life that you care so much about? Like, are you a peacemaker so that when people cannot reconcile, it breaks your heart? Are you somebody who's actually supposed to emerge from out of the shadows in a more extroverted way than you've ever done before, but you're afraid of being seen? Is it possible that there's a light that you're supposed to reflect, that you're supposed to share? Is it possible? I think this is so important, friends, because when, when we pick up on this way of being and we realize the heart value, especially that the Lord wants us to manifest, it, it, it spreads the word, just like Andrew Brunson has done for us recently. It spreads the word. It sets people's hearts on fire. 
I think sometimes it does look a little funky and a little ugly. I mean, the cross is a, is a, it's a scandal to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. And yet that was the way for us humanity be, to become mature and for Jesus' mission to be matured. That was the way. I'll finish with just a, an illustration of what I'm talking about because I think it's meaningful not just for us in relationship with one another and bearing witness with one another. This is critical for the next generation. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, I think what you have to be concerned about right now is the vitality of the faith being passed on to the next generation, is it? Are we able to bear witness in a way that catches fire from brow to brow? And I think... The fear is, maybe not. And yet I don't think that's the truth of how we're supposed to be. I was talking to Val, who is um, in charge of pastoral care in our cathedral. She's also a deacon there. And she said, um, when her daughter Karis came back from Israel a few weeks ago, went with my son Noah, um, she brought with her these dates. And they're dates from Israel. And she says, I have never, ever tasted dates that were sweeter and richer and more exquisite than the dates of Israel. And she said, I didn't know this, but apparently these dates really are the best in the world. And it's because, they, they theorize, these, these, um, these plants that produce the dates, these bush-like plants, I, th I think, um, when they are growing in a desert and arid con condition like Israel, they have to work so much harder because they understand that their species is at risk. Like, the environment is not friendly to them at all. It's a hot, oppressive environment, and it's not friendly to them at all. So the shrubs, the bushes, they put all of their energy into producing that which will carry it forth into the next generation. The seeds, the grain, so to speak, of wheat, the seed of that plant is the date. And it's full of all this richness and this sweetness. And she said, like, these plants are really even ugly, too. They spend none of their energy on looking pretty. But they produce the best dates because they are committed to, in plant world terminology, to passing on the faith to the next generation. I think when you're in an environment where you're being refined and you're in the fires of a difficult time, I want to encourage you that this is maybe the crucial phase of growth for you to become mature. And it may be the way that you pass on a word of faith to your brothers and sisters or to those who don't know Jesus. It may be the way that you carry forth the faith to the next generation. So I encourage you if this is where you're at, what are those heart values? Listen for them and let the Lord cause you to shine your light in a darkened generation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.